It's Monday, March 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The crisis at the southern border continues as the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas defended the actions of the administration. He made clear that the border is closed, but the message is unlikely to reach the migrants headed their way to the U.S. There are currently over 5,000 unaccompanied minors at the border, and overcrowding is becoming an issue. In other political news, Republican attorneys general are suing the Biden administration on a range of issues, and there were a number of protests and vigils over the weekend as people were calling for an end to anti-Asian violence. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, since December and increasingly in recent weeks, we have seen mass abductions of students and teachers in Nigeria. Kidnappings for ransom have become a very lucrative industry there and comes almost seven years after the abductions of 276 girls, which sparked the Bring Back Our Girls campaign on social media. While many quickly showed support online to find these girls, the rescue efforts took years to pay off, and many girls are still missing. Drew Henshaw, reporter at The Wall Street Journal and co-author of the new book, Bring Back Our Girls, joins us for how that social media campaign changed everything for years to come. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Do not come. The journey is dangerous. We are building safe, orderly, and humane ways to address the needs of vulnerable children. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We are still seeing a continued crisis there at the border, although the administration does not want to call it a crisis at this moment. We saw Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas hit the Sunday talk shows to defend the administration's handling of the surge at the border right now. He said he wanted to be clear that the border is closed and that they will continue to deport families and single adults, but not unaccompanied minors. This is uh, trying to put some strong messaging out there, but who knows if it'll reach the, the immigrants and people that are coming to the border to the United States. This is shaping up to be the first crisis, even if they don't want to call it that. There's a real problem at the border. There's migrants showing up, people seeking asylum, people that had thought that there was no hope had they come to the border under the Trump administration, hoping that there is something that might happen now that Biden is in charge. And the Biden White House has been pretty aggressive from day one trying to make this not look really bad for them. There's not a lot of good solutions for them, right? So they're trying to find ones that they think will work uh, and that won't sort of put them into the trap of the criticism that the last administration got so much when people were talking about kids in cages and being inhumane to these refugees at the border. Yeah, one of the things also that Mayorkas said was that there's no, you know, supposed gag order on border agents or something. That was uh, some reporting by NBC News, actually, saying that border agents and some officials there feel like they can't say uh, speak out, at least, and that, the uh, you know, controls on the media on what they can see. That's right. Mayorkas, along with four senators, were down touring border facilities on Saturday. They did not let the press go in with them. They have not allowed the press into these facilities, which was the same under Trump. 
And they have made some arguments about privacy, but letting cameras in, letting reporters in who are independent observers to see what the conditions are actually like is how you assure the American public that there's nothing improper going on there. And so I think that we saw Chuck Todd on Meet the Press and and others pressing him that we weren't getting the view in that you would have thought that after the criticism from the last administration, uh, they would have been able to allow us. As of Saturday, there's over 5,000 children there at the border, over 9,000, almost 10,000 total immigrants there just at the border. And, and the big concern is just too many people, over these overcrowding situations. And obviously, we're in a health crisis still right now. There's a lot of problems that could come out of this. None of this is good. I mean, there's no uh, really good part of this. And they're trying to figure out the best way to move forward to be humane and um, just and to provide the protection that's needed for some of these children. But you're right, these facilities that are that are becoming overcrowded, that they don't have anywhere to put people. And what do you do with children who have come here without a parent? They might have family in the U.S. that they could go to. They might not. uh, Finding foster homes for them. I mean, there's not a lot of good answers here, compounded by sort of the difficult political situation that it all creates. And and that's the final note that I wanted to uh, make, at least on this, the the politics of it, right? So Mayorkas also said that, well, the previous administration kind of left us a mess, basically. They dismantled the orderly, humane, and efficient way of allowing children to make their claims here. And on the flip side, Republicans are saying, hey, you know, this we knew this was going to be a problem because of the policies of President Biden. And, and they failed to accurate to prepare for uh, a surge that they knew was coming. Even during the transition, there was warnings of a, of a big surge coming. These children and migrants did not fly to the border. They walked really insane distances. And so we've known for some time that they were coming here. And the Republican criticism is that Biden put up a welcome mat by being willing to sort of house and process some of these migrants after President Trump was not. That is a criticism that sort of um, comes with the with the understanding that that there was a lot of criticism of the way that President Trump handled this. But I think that we're definitely seeing this play out. And I think that Republicans see a, an opening or an opportunity when it comes to politics that they could be critical of Biden on this front. And it will really appeal to the voters who found President Trump's anti-immigration message so appealing for the last four years. We're seeing Republican attorneys general uh, all over the country step up to the Biden administration and sue them over a ton of different issues. The Keystone XL pipeline, immigration, climate stuff. I think there was even a challenge to the COVID-19 relief bill. But this is kind of a flip of what we saw during the Trump administration with Democratic attorneys general suing the Trump administration. This is a a big effort to, to slow down the agenda. Ohio actually sued over the COVID relief bill that the state aid is unconstitutional, could um, put in jeopardy the aid of all states, right? If this is deemed to be unconstitutional, it could all get stricken from the law. And I think what we're seeing is sort of the back and forth that really began under the Obama administration when Republican attorneys generals really stepped up the number of lawsuits they were filing against the Obama administration. We saw this on Obamacare. We saw this on some of the environmental 
environmental admissions regulations. And then in turn, Democrats came back under Trump and now Republicans under <laughs> under right. Biden. It's sort of been a, a new thing. And, and it's really sort of elevated the job of attorney general, which was often just handling sort of criminal cases or other smaller cases in their states to now a really prominent political position for some people on both sides of the political aisle. And increased use of executive orders, which we've seen in the past few administrations. So this leaves them up to uh, legal challenges. So we're seeing a lot of that, you know, on that front, just because of the executive orders. That's right. Executive orders test, you know, the president's Article Two powers inherently because they rely just upon that and they don't have Congress signing off on it. And that their very existence makes states feel that they have a, a place to challenge. So lots of opportunity, lots of people taking these opportunities. And really, when we're living in a world where Congress just doesn't function, it barely functions, it's sort of the, the latest version of checks and balances in our federalist system. Over the weekend, we saw a lot of protests and vigils calling for an end to anti-Asian violence. We've seen a rise in that. We've gotten a few reports saying, you know, a, a rise in anti-Asian hate incidents happening. Hundreds of people gathered at the Georgia State Capitol. This is after the shootings that happened at those Atlanta area spas where six uh, women out of eight people that, uh, that were killed were of Asian descent. President Biden's meeting with Asian American leaders. They're urging the passage of a COVID-19 hate crimes act. Um, you know, what are we expecting to see? What kind of movement are we expecting to see on this realm? Yeah, I think we've seen in the weeks even leading up to this really terrible shooting an increased amount of attention about the really horrific attacks on Asian Americans in the U.S. that started at the beginning of the pandemic a year ago and have really escalated now, not that there weren't attacks before, but sort of this new wave of, of attacks targeted at people of Asian American descent in the United States. And I think we're seeing politicians like Joe Biden, state and local leaders, members of Congress really trying to address this. I mean, we know there was an increase in some hate crimes over the last four years, that these are very difficult things to address, that it takes a lot of community, that it takes people across the political and ideological and racial spectrum to speak out against these sort of things to try to make them stop. It's, 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 you can't make it wave a wand right. and make them go away. But I do think we're seeing just an increased attention and an effort to try to stamp out some of these, these hateful acts. Yeah. And it's tough, you know, the, the community has already, you know, spoken up about this. And even in this case of the shooting, uh, you know, he said it wasn't racially motivated. The community feels otherwise, but investigators so far said they're not even there yet to say, to possibly even say that it could have been related to race. You know, and I think there's been some really great pieces on NBCNews.com looking at sort of this issue where experts say it's difficult to say that race wasn't a factor when everyone shared a race. All of these victims shared a race. I mean, right. he can say it wasn't a factor. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But but the product that we saw, his actions really, uh, not to be too cliche, speak louder than his words here that it was. And so um, it's important for our colleagues, for our friends, for the strangers that we don't know on the street who are Asian American to acknowledge that this attack has been really hard on them. And this is a really difficult time. And just because the shooter said his motive was one thing doesn't mean we can't all acknowledge uh, what was going on there. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Fridays has not been resolved. We've got nearly 40 students missing and they appeared in a video over the weekend. They're being beaten in this video and saying, basically asking to give their captors more than a million dollars and saying, just give them what they want. Joining us now is Drew Hinshaw, reporter at The Wall Street Journal and co-author of the new book, Bring Back Our Girls, The Untold Story of the Global Search for Nigeria's Missing Schoolgirls. Drew, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's been a, a number of mass abductions recently in Nigeria. The latest one was at a primary school where, where children were taken. I think some teachers were also taken. We haven't heard about this happening very much in a long time, but just recently, since this past December, there's been a number of these abductions. It seems that kidnapping for ransom there has become something of a lucrative industry. And, um, you know, we're just, like I said, we're just getting a lot of this stuff out. So Drew, I know you cover this and obviously right. with the book, tell me what we've been seeing. How many of these abductions have been happening recently? Right. We've seen three kidnapping attempts just in the area of Kaduna in Northern Nigeria in the last four days. Fridays has not been resolved. We've got nearly 40 students missing and they appeared in a video over the weekend. They're being beaten in this video and saying, basically asking to give their captors more than a million dollars and saying, just give them what they want. Saturday, there was another kidnapping. That one wasn't successful. Monday, there was yet another kidnapping. That one, they weren't able to take students. They were able to take three teachers. So why do you think we're seeing this rise up again? As I mentioned, you know, they're doing this for ransom most, mostly, right? So they're right. at least getting paid out somehow. Right. There's a kidnapping economy that's taken hold in the north of Nigeria. And, and school children are soft targets. They are prime targets. You know, if you can't go to a high school, you can go to a primary school. I think this has become a way that if you're prepared to do that, you can raise money. And as we've seen before with some of these famous kidnappings like the one in 2014, you can raise fame, you can raise your profile in addition to just raising money. All of these kidnappings right now, as you mentioned, they're coming nearly seven years after what happened in 2016, the abduction of, I think it's over 200 girls right. in the school there. Uh, it was done mm -hmm. by Boko Haram. Are these new kidnappings the same group? Do we know who these groups are? These are different. The kidnapping in 2014 by Boko Haram was ideological in nature. And if there's anybody who understands what these students who've been kidnapped over the past few days are going through, it's the young women themselves. You know, these young women spent years in captivity. They were forced to find ways to survive. They were hidden under trees from the watch of drones. They kept secret diaries to maintain who they were through this difficult ordeal. They found ways of singing hymns and, and smuggling food to their friends to hold on to their friendships. That kidnapping took three years to resolve. Yeah. It ended with a ransom. These kidnappings that we're seeing now are criminal in nature. They take days to resolve but they end up in the same place, which is money being delivered. You know, like a lot of things on, on Twitter and social media, sometimes they're flash, a flash in the pan, right? We, we know yeah, we notice right. it for so long. And that kind of was the case with this, but the effects of it there, you know, just kind of, we have military deployments there now. It, mm -hmm. There was really a lot of cascading effects that happened because of that. For most people that ended with a few tweets, you know, we all saw some of our, our favorite celebrities, you know, holding up placards, you know, and it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was for a just cause. And many of us click tweet too. What many of us don't realize is by clicking tweet, we lit a fuse of unintended consequences. Drones went looking for these young women. Seven foreign militaries scoured the north of Nigeria. Satellites were looking for these young women in a, who were being held in a part of Nigeria where there was no internet coverage. There was a kind of a global manhunt really like the world had never seen before. And yet all of this foreign military power 
failed to free even a single girl. And freeing that group of uh, 103 women were freed ultimately. And freeing them fell to a small crew of Swiss and Nigerian volunteers who did the work of just figuring out, like, who is Boko Haram? Why do they take these young women? What do they want? Yeah, as you mentioned, it ended up coming down to a deal. I think they got 3 million euros, the release of five of their fighters who were jailed. And in the end, there was still 100 girls missing. 112 missing. missing. That's right. 112 are still missing to this day. And, you know, you wonder, what would have happened if we hadn't clicked tweet? There probably would have been no rescue effort at all if we hadn't done that. At the same time, maybe more would have been able to escape. So you're left with parents who wonder, would my child be home if if things had turned differently? And even for these groups, you know, Boko Haram changed their tactics because they saw this. They saw the power of it, you know, and then they started touting how, you know, they were capturing more girls. They used some in suicide bombings and, you know, others were forced to be married. Right. It became a roadmap for gender-based violence. ISIS picked up on it. ISIS sort of noticed Boko Haram after this kidnapping. And we're seeing this still going on uh, in the north of Nigeria, where we're still seeing Women and also boys being kidnapped and conscripted. And it's unfortunate. And this, what we're seeing with these school children kidnappings for ransom is a continuation of a trend in which children are being made to bear the brunt of this conflict. Yeah, I mean, some of those numbers are crazy. Yeah, I noticed you mentioned that Boko Haram had kidnapped, they said, more than 10,000 boys to Mm -hmm. be child fighters and almost a similar number of girls, like I said, to sell off at ransom or, you know, being forced to be married and all. For the book, you spoke to a number of these girls that obtained their freedom. What did they say life was like in that time that they were in captivity? It was extremely difficult. Boko Haram was trying to break their friendships and break their faith. They offered them better food, better treatment, and shelter if they would abandon their faith and adopt Boko Haram's version of Islam. I want to be clear about that. You know, these young women were being kept under trees. They were being rained on. They were being denied food. But instead of abandoning their principles and their friends and, you know, betraying their classmates, a very, very large number of them stuck together. They staged hunger strikes. They sang songs when Boko Haram had told them not to, to the point where Boko Haram would punish them, like with physical punishment for singing. And then they would keep singing. They prayed at night. They prayed into cups of water. They kept secret diaries tied to their bodies for years. They had a Bible on them for most of this time. For most of us, they were kind of faceless victims, people who the only thing that they'd ever done was to be put on the back of a truck and driven into the woods. But that was sort of the beginning of their story. I mean, these young women, you know, staged a remarkable rebellion and managed to survive in impossible circumstances. And it's it's a testament to sort of the extraordinary heroism that you see in wartime. And what are some of them doing now? Because my understanding was when it happened, right, these girls were studying for school exams. I think the ones that were able to obtain the freedom got scholarships. So what are they doing now? 106 were offered full scholarships to the American University of Nigeria, which is one of the best schools in the country. It's up in the north and it's, you know, behind high security walls, air conditioned dorms. Children of the political elite park their SUVs next to flower studded gardens. It's a a very different world from the camps where they were held for for years. Having said that, Chibok is not a safe town. There are still um, concerns about the direction that this war is going in and, and what happens next. The book is out now. It's called Bring Back Our Girls. What else can we learn from all of this? 
I just think that if there's kind of two things I'd quickly say here, one is that we have an extraordinary power with social media. I mean, most people, they click tweet and they didn't really think that, well, my clicking here is unleashing a cavalcade of consequences for good, but you know, also kind of unpredicted and, and you know, for not so good always, at all times. And the other thing I just say is that 23,992 Nigerians have gone missing in this war. These kidnappings that we're seeing are a fraction of a larger problem that is left to be resolved. Drew Henshaw, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, co-author of the new book, Bring Back Our Girls, the untold story of the global search for Nigeria's missing schoolgirls. Thank you very much for joining us, Drew. Thank you, too. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.